welcome to the third show on how to deal with anxiety, stress and depression during the COVID-19 pandemic for people with MS. And in the first two programs, the first one we discussed anxiety, last week we discussed stress and this week it's depression. And this is, I think a really it's a big issue for people with multiple sclerosis because it is so common. And I was just reading uh, an article in uh, one of the different papers, and it said in it, which this is the reality, uh, I'm going to read it exactly. Uh, the impact of the pandemic on patients with MS, uh, cognitive dysfunction affects nearly 70% of MS patients, and symptoms of anxiety and depression have been reported in around 57 and 40% of patients respectively, okay? That's a huge impact on us as individuals as a result of our particular illness and how are we going to manage it? Okay, so before we start, uh, one of the people who is watching the, uh, this live with us is Mary Amelia. And during the week, she very kindly sent me a poem that she had written in 2018. And I just thought it was perfect for the start of this particular episode. So I'm just going to read that now. I do not see. I do not see what you see when you look at me. Do you see too young to be in that chair? No established cure in a world too busy to care. Do you see a past whiz who has now lost its spark? Do you see the heartbreak? Do you see the pain? Do you see the acceptance? Witness the determination to keep sane. I do not see what you see. When you look at me, I do not see because I do not look. And that's, I just thought that was fantastic, Mary, and I'm delighted to be able to share it today. And I think you reflect a lot of what people with MS do. We hide our symptoms, we hide our illness as much as we can, and we find it very difficult to talk about it and to let other people know about it. And that can lead to stress and it can lead to um, anxiety and it can lead to depression. So Jonathan, thank you very much for coming again today. Um, to kick off, uh, can you explain to me the difference between, we've discussed anxiety, stress, what, what is depression? Okay, well, one of the first ways people will diagnose, your GP will diagnose depression is when you present with lots of somatic complaints. Somatic, and what do you mean by somatic? Kind of headaches, tummy aches, um, neck pain, back pain. Um, you might feel a bit sluggish, like you, you, your concentration's gone, you can't make decisions. Um, you feel that you're slowed down. Um, your speech might even be slowed, um, or your ability to articulate yourself. Um, the feeling of, it's called anhedonia, A means without. Hedonia, without hedonic pleasures. So the person can't enjoy what they used to enjoy. Um, people often will feel as if I must have done something wrong. Maybe God is getting at me. But I feel guilty, the sense of guilt and a sense of portentous 
uh, anxiety that I've done something there's a, a feeling of dread that is with an anxious association with the future doesn't really exist um a sense of sadness for some or numbness that I'm so numb I can't even cry anymore I can't cry a sense of um not being worthy being a burden um a sense that uh the world would be better off without me um a sense of impotence a sense of sexual impotence but also a sense of um i anything i'll start just will fail what is the point in me why do i exist the world is moving on and i stay in the same place or i'm left behind um so it's a very complex sense but it you know for for you know diagnosis of depression or as you know over half of people with ms will have it at some stage um it's more than just the reacting and accepting the changes in ms it's when you become plugged out when someone takes the 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 energy wire and plugs it out and you're just slowly moving into nothingness that you almost some people talk about a dark shadow or a dark cloud or a sense of darkness everywhere and that even initiating things getting up in the morning doing things things which is like writing a letter send it to your friend that they sent at christmas and now it's april um the the ability to initiate and start yourself goes it's as if the starter plug is gone um, and then when you start yourself that the the battery is empty so it's there's some of the things i, I hear and then you just their own thoughts that i'm a bad person i'm worthless the world is good for me and and um the future is hopeless it's the the symptoms again that you're describing are the numbness the fatigue the heaviness these are all things that people with ms yeah. experience regularly and i i know when i walk going up the stairs it's it's a labor and every step is difficult and you're again describing the symptoms of ms but the difference i'm presuming there's a, something going on in the brain that is causing this to happen and the other physiological responses that we have that are mimicking depression right are coming from lesions that could be spinal related but not necessarily in that thinking part of our brain or am i all wrong about this or is you're right we really don't really understand completely depression um they used to have this idea that there's chemical imbalance but they've kind of thrown that out because they've studied people with low serotonin levels and they're not, they're not depressed um but we love to have a simple answer to things and there isn't one and ms does tick a lot of the boxes for depression if you think about as you said all the things of inertia the, the fatigue um and then how you feel and think it's a bit like someone with, with chronic pain you're not going to feel very worthy you're not going to so there will be a mimicking but depression is is a separate entity it's all of that plus a real sense of there's there's no future what is the point uh withdrawal from other people um a sense of not wanting to be seen and and not even looking at ourselves as the poem was said at the start there's a a withdrawal from self a withdrawal from connection with others and also a sense that to connect is going to be very difficult and why bother not why bother it's even worth it's more the no i can't it's it's not possible it's not feasible 
and that is true as well as you're, you're smiling. So I'm, I'm guessing with, with, with just fatigue and pain and headaches, that's going to make you feel, no, I can't. Why bother? It's on Sunday, I had a bad morning. Mm. I, it was, I woke up and all I could feel, I had pain. Mm. I had, I was tired. I had no energy. The thought of getting out of the bed was just, I couldn't see the point. And it was, I could feel myself descending into that gloomy space that I've been in before. And I'm lucky in that I usually can pull myself out of it. It takes me maybe two or three days. Or if I catch it early enough, I can pull myself out of it. Yeah. Um, But it's that despair. You're, You're there and you're thinking... Uh, there's no place for me in this world. Yeah. What, there's no point in having me around. I cannot do what I used to be able to do. Yeah. And like I feel that in that there are things I could do with spreadsheets and accounting and that type of stuff. I just can't do it anymore. It's just, it's gone. And that sense of loss is really, really difficult to handle. And you just get you just get fed up and you just think why continue so it's that bleakness that we're talking about yeah and we know that you know the sense of loss and bereavement the grief at losing yourself the grief at losing ability the grief at, at not being able to initiate the grief at the tiredness the fatigue you'll feel that and grief is, is experienced in your in your your stomach moving up to your sternum or your chest and it moves from there up to your throat and we get this thing called the globus or a little ball in our throat. And it's, that's how grief's expressed. It's directional. It starts in our stomach, goes to our, our sternum, moves up to our, 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 our um, throat and out. So it's really, it's, it's a cry, a yearning for, for an old person, our old self. So it's a very physical thing. And you'll know that from your body will tell you, I'm sad. I'm, and grief is, the border reavers in England and Scotland, people who lived on the borders, used to go and steal the sheep and cattle from both directions and they're called border reavers and that's how the term bereavement came so when you're bereaved you're both sad and angry so and the irish are very good at the sadness but not so good at the anger so what can happen is we can defensively switch into sadness without actually balancing it and getting into wait a minute i'm pretty annoyed i'm pretty angry at god at myself at my partner at everybody for this happening to me why me and other people are very good with the anger, aren't very good with the vulnerability and sadness. And that's, men can often be worse at expressing vulnerability and sadness. We might take to the drink or take to, you know, irritability as a way of being rather than to sit and cry. And to start, like, a, like a little boy, like a little five, six-year-old boy, just cry and go and let our, our lip tremble and just feel the despair and the pain and the vulnerability. Men aren't so good at that. Women are better at that. But sometimes I'll ask the person, does it make you feel better, this irritability? Does it make you better if you're feeling some sadness? If they go, no, I'll go, well, maybe you should be feeling something different. Because when we have adaptive feeling, when we feel sadness and it's true sadness, and adaptive sadness, and there's no other mixed or hidden emotion, we should feel relief. We feel adaptive anger and there's no hidden sadness underneath it. We should feel strengthened and, and more vitality. Each feeling really feel it and don't avoid another Should I either re- re- result in relief or in a sense of vitality increase 
so the I'm I'm not sure I really kind of understand that concept that you're talking about. Yeah. That you're saying on the one hand we can we can be sad, yeah. but we if we don't have the corresponding anger, yeah. then it it is not a healthy form of sadness. It's it's not it's not bringing us to the to a, an out to an exit. It's not giving us relief, or it's not making us feel more authority or vitality. So, are you saying that the the anger is like the the pinprick on your sadness that will it'll burst the bubble of your sadness because you have the anger? Yeah. So the anger could be a defense against feeling sad. Okay. Or the sadness could be defensive against feeling how bloody annoyed you are. Like Jesus at the temple. Remember, as children, we're taught, and we were all shocked that Jesus would go in and break things and throw everything off the stalls. That anger is a good thing. In Ireland, we're often told because of colonization and that, that anger is a bad thing. It could get you um, in trouble. Um, so don't be visible. And if you grew up in a, a family where there was an either depressed mother or angry father, it was adaptive as a child not to express anger or vulnerability. But when we grow up as an adults, we need to. And so it becomes almost a, an essential thing as a child, but which, which is detrimental now as an adult. Impact of your, your life, mm. uh, your young life, yeah. can create a block for you from, which causes you to become depressed because you're not accessing your true feelings because you've learned to hide them yeah. and conceal them. Okay. Kind of a, a defensive withdrawal. A sense of, you know, see, if you think of a house with three stories and imagine most of it, imagine the middle floor is the kind of, we're looking out the window, we're anxious, kind of making sure we're, everything's safe and, you know, we're doing well enough, enough money, enough, we're all healthy. Some people, though, when, when they're hit with MS or another thing, can go into the basement. And it's almost like a zombie life experience where you become shut off, numbed from emotion, a sense of I, I'm safe here. It's a safe place. Like I never get anxious when somebody's cut off from their emotions. They're numb because they're they're in the basement. They're they're almost psychologically dead. And then when they move up to if I get if we get them moving and get them into a good place or a bit different place, if they move up to the next floor in the house to where anxiety lives, they'll say, Jesus, Jonathan, I feel much worse going to see you. I'm not getting panic attacks. And I'll go, That's great. You're now back in your body. Um, and then they'll say, Okay. And through working together, then they'll start to reach out to other people and be seen and, and want to be seen. And then they're living on the top floor of a three-story house where they're more relational. And when we stay in relationship with others, it's a big buffer to depression and anxiety. But it's hard. And doubly hard with this pandemic, because we cannot get out and access other people. We cannot see them. We cannot have that physical interaction anymore. Yeah, exactly. And that's why things like this are so important. I attend the same for myself for it's called therapist hour, where I meet like about 46 therapists. We're all there. We all know each other's faces and there's a lovely warmth and understanding there. When you meet people who are of shared interest and who understand you, who get you, it just releases everything a bit. It does something magical. It's like the adding water to, uh, to, um, to a clay. You can make things with it instead of just being separate water and clay. There's something magical about being met as a, a person with your MS. So the importance of sessions like this in the time of the pandemic. And what if you were, okay, for me as a person, I was never comfortable explaining how I felt in front of other people. Okay, yeah. 
historically, and I would never have done it. And uh, my experience over the last five or six years has thrown me into a situation where I'm embracing my emotions now in a way that I never did. And I don't have that fear of sharing it anymore. But, and I'm fortunate there, but if you haven't learned that pre-pandemic, how do you access that now when the the mode of getting that relief is not there? I feel my body reacting to that question because it's so difficult um, because it's pre what we were like pre-MS and what we were taught about our emotions in, in our the, child, the family environment or the school environment. For, if you didn't get MS, you could be still going along do, doing fine in life. But when MS hits and then pandemic, they, inside us all, we, as children, we all know what we needed. We all knew what emotions we were feeling and we, and we learned quickly which ones not to express around toddler age. Um, so inside us all, we all long to be met to be cared for to be loved to be cherished but some of us don't even look in the other's eyes anymore we stop looking for vitality in another person's eyes we stop seeking to be cherished we put all our needs on the back burner and our children's needs in the front burner our partner's needs or the dog's needs and um, to almost disavow ourselves of ourselves um, and and the, the big leap of faith is but it's fear-based because we learned to, to, to be adaptively when we were kids. It was clever not to shout at daddy if he was drunk, because it hit you. If mother was too, too busy and uh, there were eight kids and you were crying, you learned not to cry because it got you nowhere. Um, or maybe it did. So we learned to disavow certain feelings and other people are angry, other people are sad, not me. But it means we're losing a well of experience and a well of, of things to taste. Um, now, of course, you could lose taste with the MS and different things as well. But um, the, there's something about the big step, I think, is to, 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 to imagine your third floor is a beautiful attic with Velux windows where I am now. And that it's almost like you put things as a child in there that you might need to go up and check out and see if you, they'd be useful to you. Um, things that you, you were really good at as a child or, or maybe you, you learned to hit a hideaway, certain skills or certain attributes. Um, and to, to become curious about yourself and to say, okay, I'm gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna now look, when I meet people, I'm gonna look at them in the eyes and hold the gaze for a little while to see if there's warmth in their connection, if there's a, a desire to look at me. Because we might be carrying around a script in our head of, I'm a burden to others. Why would people want to ask me about my MS? I look handicapped because my, my right side is not working very well or I'm, my gait is, is unusual, or I'm walking funny then I might decide to, to blinker myself like a horse and not really connect to others. And that, that in a way, is a, is a, a, it's almost a self-fulfilling prophecy. If we do that for 10 years, we become hermetic. We become the person in the tower. But it's, it's a really big ask to just, so I say, be curious about yourself and inviting the world into it like you did, Robert. But it's a scary thing. So you'll have to manage your anxiety and say, it's okay, it's okay, Jonathan. It's okay, it's okay, it's okay um, Robert. It's, I need to just be nice to myself and gentle and see what happens if I just connect and look. And I might be even looking at your dog initially or your partner and just looking and just, and when we start to look at somebody, a compassion occurs and we start to, to melt a bit. And it actually removes the defense of you're either with me or against me. No one understands. Um, 
no one understands my MS, how I am. Um, how dare you talk about energy when you've not experienced the depletion of energy, which I get. Do you know what I mean? So once we go into that, it's almost like the, the Palestinians and the Israelis. We're going into black or white or all or nothing. So it's, and it is dependent. I remember last week, Robert, you are saying on how long you've had MS, the journey you've gone through, the adaptation. But when we become hermetic and withdraw, I think depression is, is fairly likely for most. There's any underlying kind of genetic predisposition or family or, you know. So you have that, that predisposition, you have your family circumstances, then you've got MS, then you've got the pandemic, and it's like a wave. It's a tsunami of stuff, and yeah. it's just going to wash and, and flatten you. Yeah. And that dark, that mm. dark place that you get to, uh, when you can't access anything, yeah. You like you don't access fear. You don't access love. You don't access yeah. none of that's there. It is an absolute emptiness that yeah. you feel inside. It's it's a what, very what, what what steps do you take, Jonathan, to actually slow it down, prevent it from happening, or? Well, the first thing is to normalize yourself, to, to see people here today. And about a third of the people with MS and the pandemic, maybe even more, will almost wish they secretly would get COVID and die. It's a nice way out. It's a way to, you know, save face. That's normal. It's normal to when you have a chronic health condition, which results in all the symptoms of MS, to secretly wish you'll die someday or get knocked over. Not commit suicide, but maybe knock it up, get knocked over by a bread van. And you'll be able to, you know, that's it, a relief, I'm gone. And please make sure that you do a good job on it so I'm not in a wheelchair and worse off. Yeah. So these things are normal when you've got something chronic. Almost a, an escape, an escape route, finally, this mortal coil, I'm gone, I'm free. So that's normal. Once you and realize that a lot of people feel that, then you go, okay, okay. So I've, I've kind of heard myself say that to myself sometimes. At least I've been told it's normal. Um, the next thing is, am I withdrawn? In what ways can I seek? And by, by being here on the Zoom cast, you're, you're doing that. The eyes of another who will understand who gets me in this life. Um, how can I discern? And this often comes from childhood. How our mother or father reacted when we're a little boy or girl and we're upset. We learn then whether we go and help seek as adults. Or do we decide, no, I want to seek help. I'll just care for others. And in a way, I'll vicariously get help for myself. So it's very important to think about how, how did I learn as a child to, to look for help or not? When I work with people, it's often the most successful who find it most difficult to adapt to MS or another chronic health condition because they're used to being CEO. They're used to providing for others. They're used to being autonomous, having their self-efficacy, their own ability to, to do things and things happen. And those people find it even more difficult because they, they, they're they not the person who goes looking for help. They're the person who does things and arrange th arranges things. So how am I gentle to myself when I feel the yearning to reach out, the yearning to, to be met and be understood? And some people are learned automatically like an electric door just goes shut. No, not doing that. Anything but that. Because it brings up a huge dread and fear, particularly if as a child you didn't get that reaction. People didn't support or, or intervene. We're all lucky if we meet somebody or a friend or a lover or, you know, um, even a colleague and work a, a peer who gets us. They're the people we need to, to hang around. 
when you've got a chronic condition, you also need to be nice to yourself and not hang around with family who are putting, um, what's the word, burdens on you or guilt on you or, or saying, oh, what's wrong with you? You've had that MS for 20 years. They're the people we need to avoid and do the dutiful family thing of attending certain things. But otherwise, they, they drain our energy. You've only got a short life. You have to think about who you can hang around with who will give you vitality. Um, and then there's a deactivation. And we talked about that last week, you know, the physical effects of MS. But the get, getting into a daily, pacing yourself into daily activities that keep you going, because otherwise we become very deconditioned very quickly. Try not to take to the bed. If you take to the bed, do for 30 minutes, maximum 40 minutes, so you don't get into a sleep and start um, affecting your, your, your circadian rhythm and your sleep. And when sleep is affected, it's one of the most common symptoms of anxiety and depression. It's the slippery road down in, into the, the ravine, which you can't get out of. Um, so there's, there's all these different aspects. But the big question is, how do I feel about myself? How, if, how do I look at myself? Do I like myself? Am I nice to myself? Or do I give out to myself? Am, am I in self-attack? So if you're in self-attack, it means you've gone beyond anger or, and fear. You've moved into a defensive place of, if I shut myself down, if I depress, people often feel like their head is heavy when they talk to me. Jonathan, my head actually feels physically heavy. And it's like a, a physical depression, like someone's pushing down on their head. Um, Jonathan, you know, I, I, don't, I don't feel like I can connect. I'm numb to my feelings, to the world, to my emotions. And this is a very clever place to go because it's safe. Very clever. So we can't attack ourselves for it and say, okay, this is very clever. However, I need to be curious about, do I want to live life or not? Do I want to have a 30 minute life or not? The descriptions that you make, um, I, I cannot see how we can avoid being in that place. It, it just is almost impossible because the, there are a lot of things going against us, yeah. bringing us to that, that place. And to find the strength to start changing your old ingrained way of living where I protected myself. I had my wall up around me. I didn't share my emotions. I wasn't angry at people, but likewise, I wasn't necessarily happy either. And to how do you break down that wall of defense mm -hmm. uh, in a way that is, and the fear that I had when I started accessing that is that I would not be able to handle the, the overwhelming wave of emotion. It, it frightened me because I had no experience of it. Absolutely none. And then to start truly feeling angry about something or deeply loving about something, it, it was overwhelming, right? And I, I was lucky that I had a good partner who helped me with this. And I spoke with you, Jonathan, about it. And that also helped me manage it. But I was lucky that I had somebody. Yeah. Right? So if you're if you're not that fortunate if you're if you have to figure it out on your own yeah. um is is there a, a series of steps that you can take that bring you to that place ultimately yeah um well the first thing is is to look at the cost of our defense and you know we say okay i'm here what jonathan roberts saying you could not be anywhere else but here it makes sense 
uh, to be nice and to acknowledge that. Mm-hmm. But then to say, okay, but if I stay in this place, even with MS and with all the things, and if I don't start to become a bit flexible about where I am, and I could be nowhere else but now, um, then where will I be in 10 years' time? It's like uh, the if you're talking to your 80-year-old self, what would what the 80-year-old self say to you now? So we want a compassionate way of looking at ourselves. We know through being human, whether you're an introvert or extrovert, that we increase vitality by doing things which interest us and are shared with others. Maybe not so much shared if you're introverted, but because you get vitality internally. But if you're an extrovert, that by doing things with others who have the same interest, um, you, it increases vitality. It increases your sexuality as well, because when we start getting, we get the move like Jagger, when we kind of start to feel like I'm able to do something, that I'm interested in something, and people look and turn, if it's at a football game or if it's at an opera, people turn and look and go, isn't this great? And it increases the volume of capacity for vitality. So to, to have an interest and shared interest and to really be discerning and not, not go off with, with uh, Michael or Mary down the road to do something which you're not really interested in. You have to be very clever and clever, as, you, as you know. Um, then the next thing is to, 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 when you, to, to talk with somebody who gets you or a therapist or um, your partner because we get into black or white thinking with depression and anxiety. They will go, oh, I can never play golf again. I remember working with a, a chap who had MS and his visual, his visual um, ability reduced his ability to see the ball, where it went and also where it was in his, his visual field. So we, we thought about it for a whole session and we thought about, let's move your ball back into where you can see it in the quadrant. And why don't you only play the last four holes? Meet your friends at a certain time. They meant friends that hang around and make sure you were there. But play three holes or four holes and increase in pace and every week, he got up to nine holes eventually, and nine holes whacked him out. You know, he'd be, he'd be gone, but it was worth it. Um, so, and other people who like to swim, maybe you don't have to swim. Maybe it's just walking in the pool that will, will be the, 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 the bit. So, and there's a bit of, you know, the old self will get really angry at that and, be, and saying, okay, both of you sit down, you, me and my old self. I go, look, I, I want to have a life. I want to be able to do, I do like being in the pool. I like the water. I like being able to hold my child or, 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 or do something. So that all or nothing thinking, then you become more flexible and you, and you move away from that and be a bit more gentle with yourself and go, well, hang on, I can still come for half an hour. I can still, you know, pace myself and, and affect the begrudgers. You know, this is what I'm going to do. This, and that'll be the hard because I, in Ireland, for some reason, we have this worry about what the neighbours will think or what the family will think of that. Like, you know, affect them. And this, it's really about giving yourself permission to be yourself. It's such a hard thing to do. really and that those old habits are are very very hard to break and I it's always a challenge it's always a challenge no it's not easy that's why we're saying you need support you need and you know when people started doing MBAs in America these are people without MS these are the brightest the brightest in business Seventy uh, percent of people used to stop. Just uh, break. Uh, what's the word? Uh, uh, drop out when you move out of. Yeah. Uh, drop out. Yeah. Thank you, Robert. Uh, uh, drop out of college. Seventy percent. But then they discovered if they got a mentor, somebody a little bit ahead of the person, who they'd meet twice a month or something, then it reversed, and only seventy percent completed the M- MBA courses, and thirty percent dropped out. So something about having an ally, someone to get to, a mentor, a peer some with MS who's a little ahead of you to meet and talk with, who will be someone to help you on your way. And that has a remarkable 
um, impact on any new behavior or behavior you want to do. So it's, so it's, it's like having a really good hobby. You know, you just find, yeah. so whether it's playing football or watching football or painting or some kind of activity that you, you mentioned the last day, getting into this flow state where yeah. you kind of lose yourself. And it was interesting. I was doing a painting by numbers thing there recently. It was, I was asked to do a review on it. But I, I lost an hour just doing that. I wow. would uncap the paints and I'd start doing it and I'd, an hour would fly by. And that flow state I used to have when I worked you know, when I would do a yeah. report or was do something, I would just get into the zone and it was just like, it was like creamy butter. It just kind of went really easily. I've lost yeah. that. I can't do that anymore uh, because pain and all, all sorts of other things. But when I did this painting, I got it back and I mm. felt that thing that I haven't had in a long time. So does it matter what you're doing as long as you hit that flow state or? I don't know. You know, it's for example, when I teach mindfulness or body scan, which might do one of our weeks, um, some people need to do Tai Chi to get into the relaxed state, which is move constant movement. I'm a bit dyspraxic, so I'll end up hitting myself in the face. Um, my wife um, needs to jog or swim to get into that flow state. So everybody has to find their own mojo and how to get into the state of being some people's crochet or it's saying the rosary, but there's some way of getting to that, that stage where it could be repetition or but what happens is people's breathing slows down and we breathe out longer than we breathe in, which is hugely important. And we, and we also, for some reason, compassion gets increased when we get into that state. And hopefully if we reflect on ourselves, we'll be more compassionate about ourselves because the one thing that maintains depression or anxiety is, is um, self-hatred, guilt, self-shame which we get into and this kind of self-attack so one of the big things to notice is am i ever attacking myself and to be honest with yourself and if you sit down with a piece of paper or if you're, you're kind of journaling go okay listen to the thoughts of myself attacking and say thanks very much you've been useful in the past but right now i just want to think about this without being attacking myself because you know it's almost like shadow punching yourself in the mirror you know you're your own worst enemy and what can happen with the, the, they call it type two trauma, when a pandemic occurs, it can actually open the doors in the house, in the basement, in the attic, which we closed away years ago. It can really open the unsupportive external environment, which is inside us, whether it's our mother or the way they treat us, our father, our teacher. And it can, we can start then rooting and rummaging in those rooms which we'd locked away for, for bits to validate how bad we are as a person or how useless we are and all the memories when we get into a mood our, our memory becomes selective then it's, it's really bizarre so it was lovely when you say that about robert about that experience that uplift that up you out of, out of any experience you had before and you got into a mood state last between kind of an hour and 90 minutes so uh, we also need to be gentle and go okay i'm in a bad mood sometimes we just wake up in a bad mood we don't have to look for a reason why we're in a bad mood we just go, geez, I'm very grumpy, very irritable. It's one thing I learned in the last five years. And during the pandemic, I got very grumpy and irritable. And people would go, how are you, Jonathan? How are you? I go, it's rubbish. I hate it. And 
And they kept really surprised. And they go, but oh, do you not do the happy clappy thing um, that everyone else is doing? It was a wonderful role with their family and whatever else. No, I was being obstructed, frustrated to all my work and things which give me energy. So when that happens, that's, that can be really annoying. And then you start to feel guilty because you're not saying, oh, I love being around the children all the time, 24 seven. Because a lot of people were saying that, isn't it wonderful? But no, we need our own space and time as well. Uh, we need to be able to, to, to have our own space, our energy. And if it is the kids that are giving the energy, that's great. That's great. But that's so you define that to yourself. But don't don't look to the eyes of another to define your internal state. Only move into yourself or look at yourself in the mirror and, and see how you feel. Notice when you're looking at the screen here with the Zoom, when you look at yourself, do you smile? Are you, are you compassionate? Are you interested and curious in yourself? Not in a narcissistic way, but do you, do you look and go, this, this is really great. I'm really doing something for myself. Or do you look and is there that angry self looking out and going, look at you again. Look at your pathetic thing on a Zoom call now with Robert about the MS. Like, would you ever get over this MS thing? Would you ever cop yourself on and do what others? Look at her. She's doing much better than me. You look at an angry, critical voice that comes from our childhood or our past or from society. Very, yeah. Very, very interesting. I, 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 I watch myself because I'm, you know, I'm typical. I, I, because I'm used to this recording thing and doing the podcast and all that. So I, I do see myself do that. I, I'm fortunate in that I, I'm usually in that happy place. So th- th- I'm, I'm quite lucky with that in that respect. I just hope that uh, what you're teaching us today and what you're helping us to look at will help many people, you know, they're, they're, yeah. I'm really troubled by this because I can feel myself getting gloomier because of this pandemic. And just to give other people the, the, the tips and tricks, like that day on yeah. Sunday, my partner said, come on, we'll go for a walk. And it was just going out mm-hmm. and it was beside the river here, in trees, the wind. And that, that helped. That actually lifted my mood. And I know if I had stayed at home that day, I would have been in a different place. So yeah. The again, you've been talking about flow state, you've been talking about uh, meditation, mindfulness, writing down stuff, journaling, all similar stuff. Is there any role for diet in this? Well, diet's huge. It really is. Um it's because you're you're thinking about trying to stop inflammation in your body. You're trying to get so you're not going to boom bust by having too many carbohydrates or, or you know, simple sugars and that. Um, the problem is when we're feeling low, we don't, like my wife doesn't say, Jonathan, feel terrible today. I go, why? I ate eight bags of baby lettuce last night. That doesn't happen. We go for sweet foods. We go for fatty foods and high carb- carbohydrates. When our mood goes down, it's just an instinctual thing. Some people, though, the natural way the body should react is, is we should stop eating when we're, when we're anxious or feeling bad. But because there's so much abundance of food in our society, we, we've learned as a kind of a, a defense to, to eat when we're upset or eat when we're, we're anxious. So it's, it's so important uh, from antioxidants, things high in antioxidants, um, minerals, magnesium. We've talked about these before, things which will help with anybody with any central nervous system difficulties. Um, and then to figure out with stimulants, whether stimulants are good at certain times of the day or not good for you, whether you need to take a Ritalin or something to help you to, to just get your focus and concentration. It's, and that, so this is really difficult stuff. We have to really slow ourselves down to see what is good for me here. 
And sometimes what I'll do is I'll change three or four things in my life at one time. That, that's, that's useless to me because I don't know what's happening then. Um, and also, I think the diet, the, the diet of what we read online and that, because I, I look at the MS thing daily after Robert telling me about it. And that's really interesting. It activates my curiosity. But if I had MS, it might be a bit like, remember the start of the pandemic, we're checking every five minutes to see what was happening. It's turning our fear system on. It's turning this alarm system on, which for about 40% of people with MS, they'll have, they'll have had this alarm system on since childhood, since they're a baby, because they mightn't have had a, a comforting enough environment around to, 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 to calm the system. Um, so yes, nutrition is huge. I'm not a nutritionist or dietitian, so I won't, go, I won't go into their area, but there's a lot of essential things. And I recommend meeting somebody like that in, in the hospital or get a referral from your consultant for that, to have a look at that, to see the impact of things you should yeah, eat and actually, should not eat. I'm planning an interview with a dietitian at some stage in the future, yeah. I'll duff my hat to them. The, the one really important thing and, and is don't go for a walk if, if walking's not your thing. You know, it's not going to help you. Don't go for a swim or go to the beach if you hate beaches. There's a chap, I think his name is Paul Gilbert, who wrote this really good paper on the importance of your external environment. If your internal environment starts to feel a bit creaky, if you start to open all the doors which you didn't want to open before, what you need to do is counterbalance by having a very strong external environment. That if, you, if you've been sitting here in front of a PC that's half wonky, and you, instead of buying the, the kids something for Christmas or for their, their communions, buy yourself a nice laptop or computer. Do something good for you, for external environment, which you need, which will make your life easier. If it's um, that you've got a car but you don't use it, get rid of the car, get rid of the insurance, and you use it for a taxi every day, and it'll cost less over the year. Think really about yourself and what can I do in my environment that will facilitate me. If you're a person who always felt at ease and at home by living by the sea, try and live by the sea. If you felt at home living in an industrial city place and that makes you feel yourself, live in a city. Have a conversation with your partner or your friend or yourself. Where do I feel best? Where do I feel most supported internally when I've something externally supported? Thank you very much, Jonathan. I'm just after looking at the time. I didn't realize we're, we're cl close to the 45 minutes. Now, I did have three questions that uh, people sent me and I'm going to. I won't get to all three of them now. Uh, we just just don't have the time. So I'm just going to pick a question that I um, was asked is, do you have any advice on how to keep upbeat with MS? even though your illness is progressing. Okay. So the one thing I do not want to do is make people feel happy clappy or, or Pollyannish or upbeat. Sometimes to feel upbeat, we need to be develop self-compassion and to go into the sadness and to go into the, the it's, if we want to feel upbeat because we actually need to be grieving our, our, our previous self, then we need to not be upbeat. We need to sit with the sadness and talk to a friend about all the losses we've had and to cry and then we get relief and that relief will then bring us into a space of having feel more energy and upbeat. Ah, okay. So, so, so we have to admit to our loss, basically. And yeah. do we have to do it with another person, or can it be with the page? Or no, it's, some people um, some people reject it, so they go to a sad movie or turn something sad on to allow the sadness through. But uh, the best way is to sit with yourself and just cry, or just sit with the feeling. Now, the thing with grief is it hits you in waves. There's little reminders of the past which open up in your internal environment. You go, God, I remember I used to be like that. 
and then you compare yourself to now, you're the present, and you've gone, oh God, look at how much I've lost. Look where I was then and now. And in your body, the sign of grief will be pain in your heart, your chest, tightness in your throat, and a sense of just sadness. Some people when I work with, and they come in, they're like a very happy, clappy, and a very upbeat, and they have this, this perma grin, like Sharon Shannon on the, 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 um, the accordion. Um, and I go, okay, I wonder if there's any other feeling there. You know, you're saying all that, but you know, just wondering if there's anything else. No, never, I don't feel sad. I'm, I'm always very optimistic, half glass, half full. Okay, okay. Wow. And I might give an example of my own life to them and go, you know, sometimes things sad happen. You know, so people die or when something happens or we get really upset about something happening or someone just you know, uh, disgraces us or admonishes us. And then they go, has that ever happened? And then when they start to, to look and parts of their life, and I go, just allow yourself to feel as sad as you can. Just allow your face to, and you see that it's so hard. They're conditioned to have this, everything's fine. I remember working with a doctor in the hospital who came back, his father just died. He was from the African continent. And I said, hello, how are you doctor? And he went, oh, very fine, I'm fine. My father died over the weekend with a smile. Okay. So we do often have defensive emotional places where we feel safer with. Um, to look at the whole world through. And the answer, I suppose, is to, to try to explore all the, all the feelings, and all the, the gambit of emotions, the gambit of energies, the gambit of, of loss. And when we can, ex you know, C.S. Lewis talked about the pain now as part of the happiness then. That's the deal. But it wouldn't be in pain now unless we had happiness and vitality in the past with something. And the, the happiness now is part of the pain in the future. The poem that comes to mind was Circus Animal Desertion by uh, Yeats. And in the last line, he says, I must go where all ladders start to the foul rag and bone shop of the heart. Okay. And uh, that's yeah. exactly it. Yeah. You need to go to that bad place. You have to see that sadness. You have to acknowledge that grief before you can then become happy. And then you can be actually positive. And you can say, okay, I've got MS, it's, it's lousy, it's crap, but I've said farewell to that old bit of me, and now I can embrace the new me. And when you do that, a, there's a lightness, and you get yeah. that uh, vitality back. Yeah. You're increasing your internal breadth of experience. You become a, a, deep, a wider and deeper person, and instead of one ladder, you have fifty ladders. Um, and and but you have to learn that, and it's about immersing yourself and staying with our natural thing with pain is to avoid it. Interesting. Okay, I'm I'm going to have to um, say this has to be the end of the show because uh, we're running out of time, unfortunately. Thank you very much, Jonathan, again for your time today. I really appreciate it. And on behalf of everybody here, uh, thank you very much. And we'll see you next week. And hopefully we'll go through those other two questions that um, I wanted to ask you. And we'll tie this all up. And so we can see the transition from the different uh, emotions and what we can do actively ourselves to help protect ourselves as much as we can. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to A 30 Minute Life a podcast about my life with multiple sclerosis and chronic pain.